Welcome to Hollywood Obsessed with Tony Miros, a podcast that celebrates our endless fascination with the iconic people, locations, and history of the entertainment capital of the world. If you're as obsessed with Hollywood as Tony is, or would like to be, get ready to enjoy another exciting, brand new episode of Hollywood Obsessed. Now, here's your host, Tony Miros. Hello, friends. This is your host, Tony Miros, speaking to you from the heart of Tinseltown. On this episode of Hollywood Obsessed, part two of my conversation with celebrated actor Nicholas Hammond, who's best known for playing Friedrich von Trapp in the classic film The Sound of Music, as well as the role of Peter Parker in the live-action television series The Amazing Spider-Man. Nicholas was 11 years old when he made his acting debut on Broadway alongside legendary British actor Michael Redgrave and his movie debut in the 1963 film, Lord of the Flies. Two years later, he starred in his most memorable screen role of Friedrich von Trapp, the eldest of the two boys in the 1965 Oscar-winning movie musical, The Sound of Music. After the success of the film, he went on to appear on several TV series, including The Brady Bunch, The Waltons, General Hospital, Logan's Run, and Hawaii Five-O. He then won the role for which he's perhaps best known for, as Peter Parker in the live-action television series The Amazing Spider-Man, which ran on CBS from 1977 to 1979. In the early 1980s, he made guest star appearances in hit shows like The Love Boat, Magnum P.I., Murder, She Wrote, Falcon Crest, and Dallas. Then, in 2019, Hollywood came calling again when Quentin Tarantino, who was a fan of his Spider-Man TV series, asked him to portray director Sam Wanamaker in his ninth feature film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, co-starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Nicholas currently lives in Australia, where he works as an actor, screenwriter, and director. Now that you know a little bit more about Nicholas's incredible 50-plus year career, let's continue with the second half of my conversation with him on this episode of Hollywood Obsessed. Well, before we get to Spider-Man and, and uh, everything else I want to talk to you about, there's one little thing that I just have to mention, that you were in The Brady Bunch. I was. <laughs> in the episode where Marsha injures her nose, and you were the one who broke her date. <laughs> he broke a I date did. with her. I did. Oh, my gosh. Her nose was swollen. Well, when you stop and think about it, funnily enough, a couple of the girls who were working in Rocky Horror Show that I'm doing, they were talking about that. They said, you were Doug Simpson. You were a terrible guy. I said, now, hold on just one second. Marsha broke her date with the other guy to go out with me. Oh, that's true. So it's karma. You know, it was karma. So she's the one that she's the one that told the other boy, I'm sorry, I can't go out with you. Something just came up. And so when I saw Marsha with the swollen nose and I said to her, something just came up. I can't go out with you. <laughs> but, you know, let's face it. She's the one that did it first. <laughs> but it is weird that that one episode, that one episode, it had became so famous. When yeah. you think they did hundreds, if not thousands of episodes of The Brady Bunch, they even turned that episode into a Broadway play. <laughs> they, did, they, they did it on stage. Isn't it amazing that that's the one they always remember because she gets yeah. hit in the nose and it, it's the most memorable moment of the Brady Bunch. And you're the <laughs> one who, who who has to see her with the injured nose. And then said, I can't go out with you anymore. <laughs> and then, of course, the nose got better. And I tried to ask her out. And she, no, by then she, she'd she seen the light. 
But what was it like it, working it, on that show with those kids? It was great. Well, it was great because, you know, at the time, at the time, you know, they were incredibly popular. I mean, those kids were all very, very kind. They were household names. And The Brady Bunch was a huge hit show. And when my agent called and said, you've been offered, you know, to play Marsha Brady's uh, date on this episode, at first I thought, well, you know, the show is so big already that, you know, it won't be much of a role, probably. And it turned out it was quite a good role. And they also said that episode is going to be directed by Jack Arnold. Now, Jack Arnold had directed Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, wow. And he directed a few very, very interesting movies mm -hmm. that I knew about. And I thought, well, it's working on a show that's a hit show. Uh, and it's working with a really significant director. So, yeah. And then I saw the script and I thought, yeah, this is a role I could do a little something with. And he's got a really cool car he drives. <laughs> so so I was very happy. to. I was quite self-conscious that I thought I'm going to be the oldest high school kid in the history of the world. I think I was 22 at the time. Of course, then I saw Grace with Travolta and realized, <laughs> no, I'm not the oldest high school kid in the history of the world. He is. They were all I was I, I, interesting. You said I was just interviewing Lorenzo Lamas. He was like, we all could have been in college. <laughs> Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, and Barry. Uh, I just, I just worked with Barry Pearl, who was who played. Duty love him. He's the best. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. He's yeah. a lovely guy. Yeah. In fact, he and I were in the same class at professional children's school in New York. Really? We, we only, we only realized that when we saw we saw each other about two months ago, and he said, "I went to PCS." I said, "I went to PCS too." And I, and he said, "Who was your teacher?" And I said, "Mr. Emerson." He said, "Mr. Emerson was my teacher." <laughs> and then we realized we'd sat in the same classroom together. Oh my gosh! I know. I know. That's what a small world. Yeah. And, and I interviewed him for the podcast too. I mean, this is, I I, I, I'm interviewing all your friends, Nicholas. I, um, you, you will be, yeah. <laughs> you definitely, you definitely should do Angela Cartwright. She, oh, I would love, because well, also Lost in great, Space and all that. She's That's got great life. stories from Lost in yeah. Space, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and she had a really significant career as a child actress, you know, and she, uh, she and her sister, Veronica. But um, anyway, Speaking of television out. and wonderful yeah. television series, I want to talk about The Amazing Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about, is it true that you'd never seen a Spider-Man comic book before you decided to do that TV show? I think I was aware of Spider-Man comic books. I can't I honestly say I'd ever seen one, though. I mean, I didn't quite, I mean, I kind of was more familiar with Superman. Okay. But when, that I, makes I sense. Kind of, I got the concept. I mean, as soon as they said, you know, he's bitten by a radioactive spider and now he can do a human version of things spiders can do. You know, spiders can, they can jump 10 times their height and so can this boy. And, you know, they've got the strength of this and they can do this and they can do that. And, and at first I thought, I don't know why they would even in a million years want somebody like me, because in my mind, I was picturing that, if they want a superhero, they're going to want somebody who looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, they're going to want some muscle man, which I wasn't. I was just a regular looking guy. Right. And but they immediately said, we want a regular looking guy. We want people to forget that this guy's got these powers. We want them just to get involved in Peter Parker's story. Right. And then every now and then something happens where he's got to put he's got to put the suit on and mm -hmm. do something you know, anonymously as Spider-Man. Well, that then started to interest me. And I thought, well, that would, is a challenge as an actor to make people forget that they're watching what is basically a fantasy show right. about a fantastic, you know, concept mm -hmm. of somebody with these powers. 
but actually get them to forget that and get immersed in the actual story of what's going on for Peter with his, you know, his life with his job as a photographer, you know, at school, you know, negotiating with girls who he can't really tell them, you know, he has to lead this double life because he yeah. has to, he can't tell anybody that he has these powers because it would put their life in danger with sure. all the people who would, who would love to kill him if they got a chance and, uh, you know, get rid of him. And he can't, you know, he can't bring a friend or a girlfriend or anybody like that into the, um, uh, you know, into knowing that information about him because then they're just, they're, they become a target as much as him. Right. So he leads a sort of a lonely life in a way. And uh, because as much as he likes people and likes, you know, the girls that are in the show, he's got to keep them at arm's length. He can't allow them to get too close mm-hmm. or they'll discover his secret. And right. so, yeah, so I thought all those things were fascinating about the character. And and I think they still are fascinating about the character. And I'm glad to see that they've, they've maintained, I think particularly in the Tom Holland versions of, of the character, that he they they kept a lot of what I feel we kind of discovered about Peter when we created the character in the first place. Yeah. Um, so I'm really grateful that they wanted to go that way because otherwise I don't think I would have, you know, I don't think I would have been the guy they wanted for the show. I, I mean, I was absolutely astonished when my agent called. I was doing a play at the time in L.A. Uh, down at the Mark Taper uh, Forum Theater and. Uh, a very serious play. And my agent said, oh, the CBS casting director saw you in the play the other night and would like you to come in for an audition. And I said, an audition for what? And they said, a new show they're doing based on the comic book Spider-Man. I said, what? <laughs> how, how from seeing me in that play? Well, of course, this is what I realized is that they wanted somebody who they thought was a, was a good actor. And right. I, guess, I guess she saw that and thought, oh, this guy might be able to do it. And he, and he looks right and he's the right age and blah, blah. So did I was you, very fortunate. I got the role. Did you get to meet Stan Lee at all? From Yes, Marvel? I did. Yeah. While we were doing the pilot, which we shot in New York, uh, mm-hmm. mainly in New York, a little bit in L.A., but, but I would say 60, 70 percent of it we shot on the streets of New York. Um, Stan was there. He was there almost every day. He would come down to the set every day and we had dinner a couple of times. And so that was very useful for me because he, you know, he talked a lot about creating the character of, Spy, of, of Peter. And, and yeah. I mean, frankly, it's just Stan, really. I mean, it's Stan as a boy, you know, and, you know, Stan had asthma. Peter has asthma. You know, Stan considered himself a bit of a nerd, a bit of an outsider. Peter's a bit of a nerd, a bit of an outsider. You know, so basically it, it was Stan creating a persona a kind of fantasy persona of himself, you know, mm-hmm. as a, as a boy. And, um, and I mean, I would say initially that's what it was. And then obviously it just grew and grew and grew. But um, when, when you met Stan, you, I, I thought, oh yeah, I can easily imagine when you were 16, 17, 18, you know, you would have been very much like the way you feel you, you, you would like to think, you know, Peter is. And uh, so it was very useful meeting him. You know, I think in some ways, because he didn't really understand television, uh, it wasn't his world. And I think in some ways, the shows, initially anyway, he grew to change his mind, but initially it disappointed him 
that we weren't following what he did in the comic books with right. the kind of with the super villains mm-hmm. that he had. And but as I said to you earlier, you know, he didn't understand things like budget constraints that you had in TV and time constraints. Right. And we had no such thing as CGI back in those days. Right. And so he, he didn't understand. It's not like when you're drawing something and, and with a pen and a piece of paper, you can draw anything you like. You know, you can, but you try to actually put that on the screen and it costs a great deal of money. It takes a great deal of time and it takes teams of people to create those effects. Mm -hmm. And we just simply didn't have that. So uh, I don't think he ever quite understood why we went the way we did with the show. But an awful lot of people feel it was the right way to go, that they liked the fact that we dealt with, with cases that were real life cases. You know, yeah. I mean, real life in the sense that we were dealing with crimes that people could relate to, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I must you said say that, I had a lot of, yeah, go on. Go you on, said on. that it, you shot an episode for seven days. That's quick turnaround. Yeah, that's so were quick. there two units, one unit shooting that's you exactly. and the other shooting yeah. the stunt guy? That's right. Exactly right. We had, you know, the A, the A, the A crew, which was with me, and then the B crew, which was much smaller uh, unit. Uh, basically a very small camera crew and they would go with, with the stunt man uh, because the stunts, you know, they took a long time to shoot and, and, you know, you want to get them right. You want to make sure everything's safe. You want to make sure, you know, it, it's just done correctly. And so the stunt man and kind of the stunt coordinator would go off and film those while I was filming all the Peter Parker scenes and I was filming all the Spider-Man scenes that didn't involve stunts. I mean, <laughs> you know, there were there were yeah. Spider-Man scenes where Spider-Man is in conversation with somebody. Yeah. And I never wanted another actor to have to work with the stuntman, who was right. great at stunts, but he wasn't an actor. And, you know, I didn't think that would be fair on the guest stars to, to make them have to work with someone who isn't an actor. So mm-hmm. I would always put the suit on to do any dialogue with anybody else. And I would put the suit on to do things that, didn't involve anything dangerous or anything too complicated, you know, because A, the stuntman could do it better than me. And B, they weren't going to allow it for insurance reasons. You know, if I got myself injured and they had to shut the show down, you know, it would just be very expensive. Uh, And so uh, we had that kind of, you know, relationship where Fred was sort of my double and uh, would do the dangerous stuff. And I did the other stuff. How interesting. They, yeah. you, they also were doing Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk at the same time, CBS. Yes, they were. And, you know, and Linda was doing Wonder Woman and I thought, you know, did an incredibly good job. And, of course, David was doing Dr. Banner on on uh, on Hulk. And it had always been sort of a dream of mine, a pipe dream that we would do. Because back, back in the, those days, a lot of the network shows would do crossovers where... Right. You know, like, let's say if they were doing Six Million Dollar Man and then they would have Six Million Dollar Woman and then mm-hmm. Lee Majors would go on on the Six Million Dollar Woman show. And I can't remember the name of the actress who played the Six Million Dollar Woman. Uh, Lindsay Wagner. That's right. Lindsay Wagner would then go on his show. Well, since CBS was doing both Hulk and and, um, and Spider-Man, I always wanted to do a double episode where Do- Dr. David Banner would come on, you know, and work with Peter Parker Mm-hmm. And then Spider-Man would work with the Hulk. And mm-hmm. and we talked about it a bit. And then sadly, David passed away. And also mm-hmm. both shows got canceled. But it was it was a, if we'd both been picked up for another season, 
that was definitely something that both David and I wanted to go to the network and pitch it as an idea because we just thought it'd be a really cool idea and we thought the fans would love it. Yeah, so that would have been a great idea. Yeah, Wonder Woman was, I believe, was ABC or NBC. I don't think she was CBS as well. Well, I know that she did one. They started on one network, then she got canceled and they moved them. I think they moved her to ABC. I think that's right. I think that's right. There is somebody on YouTube, somebody with too much time on their hands, (laughs) who's done a mashup of me and her. Oh, really? Yeah, of of me going and rescuing her on on Wonder Woman and then her doing something to help save Peter Parker. (laughs) How they, you know, they just spliced together millions and millions of little clips from both of our shows. Oh, God. And so it's cute. It's cute, yes. No, I had great admiration for Linda. I thought she did a really good job as Wonder Woman. She did. She was Wonder yeah. Woman forever. And then yeah. Gal Gadot got it. And she's fantastic, too. And, and, I think and that's, that's fantastic, too. Yeah, yeah, I know. Speaking so of those big, pretty... the big superhero movies, did they ever ask you to make a cameo on one of the new Spider-Man films? Well, funnily enough, they did on the very last one, but it was a bit too late. They asked me, I was, I was in the middle of doing something else down here. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of at the last minute they said, oh, why don't you come and do this? And I mean, it literally would have meant like getting on a plane the next day. And it was so tiny that I thought, I don't think anybody's going to even know that's me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did say, look, next time I'd be delighted, but let's do something where I don't care, if, you know, even if it's 10 seconds on screen. Right. But let's make for the fans sake, it's got to be something where they can go, oh, my God. Look, look who that is. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> what's the point, you know? So yeah. I, I have a funny feeling on the next one, I will be. Yeah, I just have this funny feeling because there was a huge thing online of all these people going, why isn't Nicholas Hammond in, you know, in uh, Spider-Man No Way Home? And so I, I just kind of feel I will be next time. I'd yeah. love to see that. And I'll be I the first one that stands up in the theater goes, I know who he is. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be a riot. And I think, I think, as I say, only because I think the fans would get such a kick out of it. It would Absolutely. be a shame not to do it. So I hope so. But you were in recently in a huge film. It was, mm. I loved it. Actually, I saw it again recently because I wanted to refresh my memory. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Quentin yeah. Tarantino. What an amazing was... film. And what a great job you did. I mean, thank you. That's thank Sam you. Wanamaker. Was he really that out there or what? No, I don't think so. I think that was Quentin's idea. He wanted to make him really larger than life. And he wanted to make him not so much like the real Sam Wanamaker, but he wanted to make him like that type of Hollywood director who just is like incredibly in your face and incredibly kind of, you know, more dramatic and more theatrical than the actors are. And, (laughs) and, and, um, and he, he, so that's what we kind of went for. Actually, what Quentin told me was, which he sent me and I looked at it, Sam Wanamaker did a film as an actor called um, The Competition. It was a film with Richard Dreyfus and Amy Irving. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. He, yes. And okay. he played the maestro conductor of this orchestra. Uh-huh. And he played him as this very theatrical, very over-the-top guy and Quentin said, I don't want you to be like the real Sam Wanamaker. I want you to be like that Sam Wanamaker. I want you to be like the guy he is in that movie. So we, so even the, even the kind of um, cream-colored uh, sweater that I wear draped over my shoulders, if you look at the competition, that's, what's want, that's what he's wearing in oh, that film. Uh, so now we I'm going to have to go back of, and watch that. 
we even referenced his wardrobe because Quentin was there in the at the wardrobe department and he picked out every single thing I wore, including the medallion around my neck, which was Sam Wanamaker's star sign. It was a Libra. <laughs> I mean, that's how detailed uh, Quentin is. And um, but ironically, Tony, is that if I hadn't played Peter Parker, I wouldn't have been asked to be in that movie because he found an old 35 millimeter print of the pilot to my show. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he screened it at the New Beverly in mm -hmm. Beverly Hills. Yeah. And I found out about it. Uh, somebody said, hey, did you know your, your thing is showing at the New Bev and Quentin owns that theater. <laughs> so I said to my manager, I said, you know, I'm a huge Quentin Tarantino fan. And if he's running my movie, it sounds like he kind of liked that series. I don't know why else he would. So I said, you know, look, if you want to tell his people, if he ever just wants to have a cup of coffee and talk about, you know, The Amazing Spider-Man, I'm down for that. You know, I, I think that'd be cool. And I got a thing. He'd like to meet you tomorrow at four o'clock. And I thought that's what it was. I, I had no idea he was even making a movie. Oh. And, and, and I thought I was just going to go in and talk about Spider-Man with Quentin oh. Tarantino, which was totally fine with me. I was, you know, I, I'm a huge admirer of his work. I love Pulp Fiction. I love, you know, Hateful Eight. I love all his movies, Django. Yeah. Um, so I go in and sure enough, there he is. And he said, oh my God. He said, it's the Nicholas Hammond. <laughs> so, and then he, and he did talk about, he did talk about Spider-Man and I thought, this is fun. You know, I'm enjoying this. And then very slowly in the conversation, he started saying, you did a lot of Westerns when you were first uh, uh, out in, in LA, didn't you? I said, yeah. You know, he said late early seventies, he said, you, what, you were on Gunsmoke? And I said, I was on Gunsmoke or uh, uh, several seasons of Gunsmoke, got an Emmy nomination for Gunsmoke. I said, I was on Dirty Sally. I was on Oregon Trail. I was on, yeah, a lot of them. He said, yeah, yeah, that's right. And he said, you had your own pilot, the deputies. I said, that's right, with Don Johnson. He said, yeah, you, well, you would have worked with a lot of those directors from TV who did Westerns. I said, he said, did you ever work with Sam Wanamaker? Because he directed one called Lancer. And I said, no, no, I haven't heard of Lancer. And he reached into his drawer and he said, here's the DVD. Go home, watch Lancer. Here's the pilot that Sam Wanamaker directed. And I thought, you know, Okay, I don't know what, <laughs> why, but thank you for the DVD. Okay, I'll watch it. So you still had no idea he was going to ask. No you. idea. I didn't know he was making a movie. Uh, so I get in the car because I was I had to go straight to LAX. I was I was flying back to Australia to start a job here the next week, and in the car, uh, I called my manager, or maybe he called me, and I said. Well, I said, that was really fun. I, you know, I enjoyed it tremendously. I said, a little odd at the end. I couldn't understand. He, I said, he's handed me this thing to watch. He said, they just called. They've just offered you the role of Sam Wanamaker. You didn't even know. No, I had no idea he was making a movie. And he never for one second talked about the movie he was making or what it was about or who was going to be in it or anything. Amazing. And to this day, I've never seen a script. All you ever get are the pages with the dialogue you're in. Oh, he didn't give you a full script. You could oh, just no, no, see no, what no, you no. did. I didn't, give it, I, I didn't know how the movie ended until I went to the premiere. Oh, wow. I mean, when I was at Cannes, no one was allowed to see the last 30 pages of the script except the actors who were actually in those scenes. Right. And they were all sworn to total secrecy. Yeah. 
So well, I don't um, think Leo or Brad are going to say anything. So no, they're not going to say anything. And seeing, but you know, but also the girls, you know, who played the uh, who played the Manson girls, you know, they they all had to sign, you know, uh, non disclosure yeah, yeah. agreements, and mm-hmm. there was a huge amount of secrecy on the whole film. I mean, Quentin is very very uh, private. You know, no cell phones are allowed anywhere near the set. Uh, no electronic devices at all uh, or a- anywhere. And, you know, he's very, uh, which I think is good. I think it's very good. I, I mean, I, it's a great way to work because everybody's focused on the work. Right. Also, it saying, gives you what we used to know when we go to the movies, you wouldn't know what's going on. Like, you know, right. that now they give you all these previews and they show you everything in the movie. You're like, wait a minute. I just saw the entire film in 30 right. seconds. I don't need to see the movie now. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and you're right. I just saved $15, but I have to say, and I think it's a sign of the respect in which Quentin is held. When we had the first screening, which was at Cannes, uh-huh. when it competed in, in the Cannes Film Festival, and it got this huge ovation at the end and Quentin got up on the stage and this is in, in a packed auditorium. And many of the people in that th- theater were journalists. And he said, Thank you very much, you know, for your warm reception to the film. He said, and now I'm going to ask a favor of you, you know, please let every audience enjoy the same level of surprise Mm -hmm. and the same level of dramatic tension that you had by please not revealing anything about how this film pans out and how it ends. And do you know something? Not one person that I know of online, anywhere, because there was about a, well, I'm just trying to think it was several months between the time it aired in Cannes, because it aired in Cannes in May, and I don't think we were at Grauman's until like July. Hmm. And between May and July, I didn't read anybody release a spoiler about the film, which I just thought was astonishing. That's and, you know, it, I, I think it just goes to show the respect people have for him as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And also it was very good of him to get up there and, and say that to them, you know, right. not just yeah. have it be as like some blanket, but, but really from the heart to mm-hmm. say, you know, this is, this is our work here. This is something we've all poured our heart and soul into. Please let the audiences have the experience we want them to have, you know, and that they deserve to have. And well, I'm they, glad did. they did. Because yeah. I went into that film and I had no idea. And I was Nobody like, did. oh, God, I can't watch this murder happen. And yeah. then it, it didn't. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I remember I remember at Grauman's on the opening, on the, at the premiere in Grauman's, even the first time the camera drifts up and you see the street sign. Yeah. Cielo Drive. Right. And you could hear this gasp in the audience. Right. Everybody knows that's the street that Sharon Tate was killed on. Yeah. And. And you're right. There's this growing sense of dread of mm-hmm. what's going to happen. I think from the time that Brad's character goes out to Spawn Ranch and that incredibly creepy scene of going to see George Spawn, I think from that moment on, the film just shifts. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's just masterful filmmaking. It really is. Part, all know? of your scenes, and I, was, I watched it the other day because I want to mm-hmm. remind myself, all of your scenes are with Leo. Yeah. What and, was and, that like? What was it like three to more work scene, with and, him? And three more scenes that aren't in the movie, but will be uh, in the four-hour version. Uh, he's great to work with. You know, again, a fellow child actor. And we talked mm-hmm. a lot about working. His mom, his mom came on the set 
And, you know, she talked about working with Leo when he was a kid. And I talked about working as a kid. And, you know, and I, I said, what, the fir- what was the first, how old were you when you started? And he said, well, when I was nine, I did a, I think he said a breakfast cereal commercial. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I was just one year later. I started, he said, yeah, but you did Lord of the Flies. I did a breakfast cereal commercial. <laughs> I said, well, I think you've made up for it since then, Leo. Um, <laughs> But his mother looked at me and said, but you did The Sound of Music. You and did you know, do The Sound she's of a, Music. She's a huge, she, his mother's German, a lovely oh. woman. And, um, I, uh, and uh, she loves The Sound of Music. And in fact, he said to me, it was so cute because, you know, it was like a strictly no visitors allowed on the set ever. But, you know, Leo asked Quentin and Quentin gave him permission. And then he came to me and he said, would you mind very much if my mother met you on the set because she's a huge fan of your movie. I said, of course not. I'd be delighted. And, um, but he was, a, he was a, a, a joy to work with. I mean, he, he, not only is he a really, really good actor, but he's a, he's, he's a pro, you know, I mean, he's, it, he, it's all work. Yeah. There's no sense when he's on the set that, you know, that he's anything other than just somebody in the scene with you. And we have a, what was my favorite scene, which isn't in the film, which was based on an improv we did. Um, there's an imp- if you ever get the DVD, one of the one of the extras on the DVD is a six minute improv that that Leo and I did. Is it the one that, about Shakespeare? Because I did right. watch it. Yeah, that's right. Well, that was just a complete improvisation. That's what I thought. But, I'm like, they're improv. This is improv. But then based on that, Quentin then wrote another scene, which is, is a scene of me directing him before he does the scene with the little girl on his knee. Yeah. And it's a long scene of me saying, this is what I want you to do. And this is how you're going to get there. And it was a fascinating scene because I think for anybody who's interested in acting, what you would, the way it was intended, and sadly, because the movie was just too long and you couldn't, there wasn't time for it. Yeah. I thought it was going to be a very interesting insight for people watching, like being a fly on the wall of how a movie is made, where the director says, okay, this is what I want you to do. This is the attitude I want you to have. This is the kind of spirit I want you to have. This is how I want you to relate to this little girl. This is how I want you to relate to, you know, her brother who's standing there in front of you. And then they shot the scene with Leo and he did all those things. And of course, it's a wonderful scene and it stands on its own as a wonderful scene. But I thought it would have been fascinating for an audience to see, oh, I know why he's doing that. He was just told to do that. Mm -hmm. And you'd be you'd see a very good actor who is following the direction he's been given. And I thought that would have been quite fascinating. And I mean, and a lot of people watching it, you know, they just love that scene. And I'm still hoping because there's all these rumors that someday Quentin's going to do a four hour version for Netflix (laughs) because we all had scenes that got cut. Margot had scenes that got cut. My friend Damon, who played Manson basically had his entire role cut and he had a couple of fabulous scenes. He was like in two scenes in the final cut. Yeah. 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 Very short ones. And Luke Perry Uh, was Luke Perry's last film. And it was, it was Luke's last job. And he was just the sweetest man absolutely the sweetest man in the world of course i spent a lot of time with him and timothy because we had all the we had all the lancer stuff to do together oh that's so and and we you know luke perry uh i had done a i'd done a miniseries which was about the making of dynasty in which i played aaron spelling i saw that loved it 
yeah, it's pretty good. And and he, uh, we talked about Aaron Spelling, and you know he had such kind words about about Aaron Spelling. He loved the man, and he said, without Aaron Spelling, he said, uh, I he he did everything for me. He said the network didn't want me on nine hundred two one zero. He said Aaron Spelling just overruled them. And the network said, well, we're not going to pay him, you know, what he wants. And Aaron Spelling said, I'm just going to pay you out of my own pocket. I'm wow. going to pay. But because he said, I know. And of course, sure enough, you know, within a year, Luke's character was like the hottest character on the show. He was, and yeah. that goes to show how how Aaron could just judge things. And he did the same thing. And I told Luke, I said, you know, well, it's exactly the same with, you know, with what he did um, bringing Joan Collins into Dynasty. Mm-hmm. because that show was dying in the ratings. Mm-hmm. And then he had this great idea that what we need is a female version of J.R. Ewing. Mm-hmm. We don't have a bad guy on the show. Right. And, and bringing uh, Joan Collins in, it just, it just turned the show around. You had know, you met Aaron Spelling or you had not met Aaron I, I'd never met him. I've never met him. I think he'd passed away by the time we did the. Yeah, he we, did I, before, I but I thought, well, maybe, maybe you no, did the I love boat. I mean, maybe obviously I read a lot about him and I, yeah. and I, I think his wife, Candy, was still alive. She's still uh, alive now. Yeah. I, alive. I think she's still alive now. Yeah. And Tori, of course, is still alive. And I've never met any of the Spellings. But, you know, he got kind of a bad rap for a while that it was like he was considered somebody who just made schlock and all that. But actually... He was a very good and kind man. You know, mm-hmm. I was very good friends with Robert Urich because he was married to Heather. Yeah. And when Bob got cancer, and for a long time, he tried to conceal the fact that he got cancer because he said, the minute the word gets out, that's it. I'm, my career's over. No one will hire me. Yeah. Well, Aaron Spelling, when they were doing a reboot of Love Boat, he called up Bob and he said, because Bob had done several series for him. I think Vegas was for him and something mm-hmm. else. And he said, I want you to play the captain in the reboot of, of, and Bob said, Aaron, I have to tell you a confession. He said, I, I have cancer. I can't work a full week. You know, I, I just don't have the physical stamina. He said, I know you have cancer and we're going to work around you. And we'll have a bed on the set in your trailer and you rest as much as you need to rest. And we will just shoot around you. And when you feel up to it, we'll do one of your scenes. And he basically gave him a job that gave him an income and supported him really until Bob was right at the end, uh, until Bob kind of went into hospital. So that's the kind of guy Aaron was that people didn't know about. You know, they looked at the work he did and, you know, some of the shows were a bit, you know, cheesy. But behind it all, and, you know, because he lived in that kind of over-the-top mansion and, you know, had a kind of (laughs) over-the-top lifestyle, everybody thought, oh, well, he must be kind of like the Donald Trump of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. But in actual fact, he was a good man. Yeah. So... Well, you I'm did a sorry. great you did a great job oh, well, portraying you. him because I, I loved that miniseries and I thought it was good too. I liked yeah, it. I liked. I thought all the actors did a good job, uh, you know, um, of portraying the people they were meant to portray. You right. know, yeah. and, and you know, it's tongue in cheek. I get it. It's yeah. not. It's not real, but yeah. Uh, well, I, you know what? I we've come to the end, but I oh, really yes. enjoyed this conversation, Nicholas. Me I can't too, tell Tony. you. Gosh, I can't believe we've spoken for an hour. I know. What's new? Anyway. What else are you going to have? Is there anything I should expect to watch or see? Uh, yeah, I'm doing. I'm well. When I finish Rocky Horror, 
Uh, I'm doing a comedy series out here that I'm doing that Sean Penn is producing. Oh, Sean wow. is in it and uh, Susan Sarandon's in it and, uh, and uh, Brian Brown. And we're doing that here. It's a political comedy. It's a, it's a very funny kind of farcical series mm-hmm. that I think was Sean's idea. And then I'm also doing a film in Paris where uh, a wonderful uh, Australian director I've worked for a number of times named Bruce Beresford, and we're shooting that. Uh, so that'll take me really to the end of the year. And beyond that, who knows? Are you going to write I, a book about your life or no? Yeah, you know, I've been asked that many times. And I I would like to. I would like to write a book. I don't know whether anybody would find it particularly interesting. But, <laughs> but well, I mean, there's so many books out there by actors. I don't know what would make mine any more interesting than anybody else's. But well, I think you've lived a fascinating life. I really have. I have lived. A, I have lived an interesting life. There's no two ways about it. But anyway, I want I, everybody, everybody I, to know out there that the Sound of Music Family Scrapbook is amazing. It's written it by great. all the kids, all and of you. Can you can still get it. You can still buy yeah. it online, Amazon, and some bookstores still carry it. I love uh, it. And p- people do love it. So I'm glad you liked it so much, Tony. I do. And when I meet so, you in person, you'll have to sign it for me. You bet. Next time I'm in L.A., we'll, I'll tell Kristen we'll make that happen. That'd be great. Thank Thanks again. I That's so appreciate you coming and doing this. That's my pleasure. All the best to you. Bye-bye. Thanks to the amazing Nicholas Hammond for joining me here on Hollywood Obsessed. If you enjoyed listening to our conversation, make sure to tap follow on your phone, iPad, or computer screen so that you don't miss any new episodes. I promise I've got many more exciting interviews coming your way with some of the fascinating people that I've gotten to know while living and working here in the heart of Hollywood. Until next time, this is your host, Tony Miros. See you on the next episode of Hollywood Obsessed. Thanks for joining us this week on Hollywood Obsessed. Make sure to visit our Facebook page, Hollywood Obsessed Podcast, where you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss a single episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in every other Monday for our next episode. That's a wrap.